You're listening to the weekly podcast from Solid Ground Church. We hope that this is uplifting and encourages you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus. If we can be of any help at all, please visit us on the web at solidground.church. Now let's get to this week's message. Look, if you have a Bible, do me a favor, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we're going to be today, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, while you're turning there, uh, you know, we're beginning a brand new uh, series or just study. We're going to be going through the book of 1 Corinthians for the next, I don't know, like, like a while, I think. Uh, and then uh, the, the reason we're doing that is in, in, in 2022, what we want to do is, as a church, we want to begin to practice what we preach, specifically when it comes to the idea of spiritual gifts. Like, we are a church, we would say that we are continuationists, that we believe that the gifts of the Spirit as written in Scripture are still given to believers today. We see nothing in the Bible or church history to indicate uh, that that should not be our expectation. Uh, and so, but for us, what we don't want to do is just say that we believe in them and not practice them. Right? So if, if I say that I believe that God heals the sick, but I never pray for sick people, do I really believe it? I, I think the answer is probably not. And so what we want to do is be intentional about pursuing what the Lord has for us when it comes to his gifts uh, as a means of serving each other, serving the church, serving the community, and ultimately serving uh, those that the Lord has called us to make an impact with. And so the best place to begin to understand how to do that is to dig into the, what the scriptures actually say about gifts, because there have been all kinds of traditions, superstitions, and things that maybe we've picked up uh, along the way that we think the Bible says that it might not actually say about the gifts. And so we want to delve into what the Word actually says. And all that to say, when it comes to our, our study of 1 Corinthians, I just want to get this on record as saying, oh my gosh, you guys, I'm so excited. <laughs> you don't even know how excited I am like, oh, I've been looking forward to this so much. My gosh, I am pumped. Okay, like, but I, I, some of you are looking at me like I'm weird. You don't know what's coming. I think I have an idea. I am so, so excited. And I, and, and I just want, I want to get that on record. Now, all that said, Bible study stuff. Okay, you're like, what is with this frothing madman on the stage? And my luck too, this will be the YouTube uh, still this week, just like that. So, um, all right, so look, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul to a church he founded in a place called Corinth. Uh, it was written about 55 AD. Um, Corinth, if you want to sort of understand the town, Corinth was a center of trade and, and shipping. It was uh, a hub for the Roman Empire. It was a place where uh, it was a favorite uh, spot for Caesar uh, because of its temple uh, to the goddess, I want to say Athena, but I, I could be wrong there. But anyway, um, what you found is because Caesar liked it so much, uh, you had all people who, who wanted to be in with Caesar who began to uh, move there to just kind of show like, hey, I like what you like type deal. Uh, and so you had a tremendous like boom in, in uh, the housing industry there and, and all kinds of tourism and just a, a tremendous uh, boom of wealth in Corinth. On top of that, it was a very, very promiscuous town. Uh, there, like, like people got around in Corinth to the point where there was a, there's a term in, in the first century, like they would, they would say somebody... They would call you like you're sort of Corinthazo, which means you're like a Corinthian, uh, which was was an insult to them. So uh, I read one uh, commentator who said like you sort of understand the moral atmosphere of ancient Corinth or, or Corinth in the first century. Just combine New York, L.A., and Las Vegas, and that's pretty much Corinth. So so fun place to plant a church, and. Uh, 
And so Paul goes there, and it starts out great, and then he leaves, and, and, and about three years later, he writes this letter because some stuff has come up in the church, and he's responding to a lot of controversy in ancient Corinth. In fact, if I could just give you Paul's general thought in, uh, like for the entire book, if you're curious, like, like, what is Paul getting at? Like, what's he saying to the Corinthian church? I would just say, like, here's what Paul's saying. Like, 1 Corinthians in a nutshell is just Paul going, come on, you guys. Like, like, that's 1 Corinthians. Just, come on, you guys. Guys, come on. All right, so that's 1 Corinthians. So it's about as jacked up as a church possibly can be, and so let's, let's uh, get in and learn together. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says this. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Now, uh, this is how letters worked uh, way back then is they would put the signature at the front because if the letter is particularly long, like this one's going to be, you want to know who wrote it. And so Paul goes, hey, this is me from the jump. And Sosthenes, uh, this is the only time he appears as a companion of Paul in any of Paul's letters. Sosthenes was a Jewish synagogue leader uh, that the book of Acts talks about by like, being beaten for his faith, and he was from Corinth. And so you've got Paul writing with one of their own. So it continues. It says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And a few things are happening in that, in that statement right here as, he, as he's addressing who the letter is for. First of all, I want you to know uh, this word here that says sanctified. We talked about this uh, last time I preached, the, the idea of sanctified, the, the word means to make holy. And so what's happening, he goes, listen, you're a group of people that what God is doing is he's making you more like him. Now, they've got some hiccups along in that process. They've got some things that, that Paul's going to correct, just like in all of us, as the Holy Spirit uh, regenerates us and makes us like Jesus, and that's his job. Uh, sometimes we have to re be rebuked, we have to be corrected and what have you. But ultimately, Paul would say, listen, like, you are becoming like Christ. God is making you like him. And he also says, listen, um, you, you've, you've, been, you've been invited, you've been summoned to, to, to be part of that. And then he says, like, there's this interesting phrase, he says, together with those who call on the name of Jesus. Like, very quickly from the jump, what he does is he makes this not just an individual thing, but a body of Christ thing. That is to say, their spiritual experience isn't about just them. Now, I want to just hammer this for a second, okay? Because a big theme that's going to come up in 1 Corinthians is the idea of unity. That when it comes down to your spiritual life and mine, when it comes down to this idea of, hey, how do I live out my faith in Jesus, and how do I walk with the Lord faithfully? Many of us, we have a very bad understanding of this because we view spirituality as a private matter, just me and God. And in one sense it is, in the sense that God is saving you, and he, and he wants you to walk with him, he wants you to know his voice, he wants you to experience fellowship with him and enjoy life with him. But something you have to understand when it comes to spirituality is it's not about just you and God, it's about you and the body together. This is one of the like, biggest tactics of the enemy in the church today is he creates a sour taste about church in the mouths of Christians so that as they break off, what happens is nobody is there for them, nobody holds them accountable, nobody like, uh, is, can be a beneficiary of their gifts, and so like, just sort of, it's this isolated view of like, it's just me, it's just me, and it's just me and God. And I would just point out to you that almost every letter in the New Testament is written to a group of people called the church. More to the point, Paul's idea here when he says, listen, like, like together with those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus is it's about all of us seeking him together. Now, here's what that means for us. I just want you to catch this, and it's going to be offensive in our, first, uh, our 21st century mindset, but it just needs to be said. Um, it's not about you. It's not about you. 
They're like, I'm amazed at the immaturity that abounds in the church when it comes to this idea of so-and-so hurt my feelings, and so-and-so said this, and I didn't like it, and so-and-so. And it's like, well, hold on a second. Like, is what they said faithful to the scriptures? Okay, can, can you, like, well, so-and-so didn't call me, and I wanted them to call me. And Okay, like, well, have you given them the grace that you would hope somebody would give you? Like, if you missed somebody's phone call and you forgot, like, would you want them to just ditch and cut bait and run? Of course not. But immaturity abounds because we believe that the church exists to meet only our needs. And it doesn't. The church exists to be a family together. And the funny thing about family is sometimes we get it wrong. But we love each other and we stick together through it, don't we? I mean, this is really, really big. Like, like, I am amazed, and I don't mean to be mean, because I understand, like, like God calls folks to, to different places, and he brings us together, and I believe in his sovereign hand, but I'm amazed how many times, like, there is this attitude, particularly in Sussex County, because it's the only place I've ever been a pastor, so maybe it's other places, but, 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 but I've just noticed there's this thing of, like, there, there are people who have been Christians for 30, 40 years who have never found a church here. And you ask them about it, and they go, well, well, it's because I've never found somewhere that, that quite just preaches the Bible. I'm like, there's hundreds of places that preach the Bible. But what you, many people have a problem with is commitment. And what many people have a problem with is sacrificially loving other people. And so when they, when we, and, and, and their immaturity manifests in fault finding, and if they find a fault, they go to the next place. And I want to just be clear here, every church will let you down if that's your attitude. Every single one. Because churches are made up of people. And people let you down because people aren't Jesus. And, and the real test of your integrity, strength, and character will not be if you find a church that does everything that you think is right, but will you stick with the one that lets you down? Okay, let's keep moving. So, so the next thing I want us just to note um, when it comes to 1 Corinthians is how Paul, like this, this line that's coming up is, is a, a line that Paul very often opens his letters with. Um, and so he says this, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he, he opens so many of his letters with this idea. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, meaning God's undeserved kindness. Peace, meaning, like, we talk about, like, Paul's Jewish background, this, this idea of shalom being it's God's plan for creation, creation existing as God wanted it to be. So it's not just peace in the sense of, oh, I feel peaceful, or an ending of hostilities. It's completeness. And Paul goes, I want that. I want you just to walk in God's undeserved kindness. And I want you to walk in, the, like, knowing you are, you are completely restored to God. May you enjoy that relationship with him. And God, our Father, how does God relate to us now? He is our good, heavenly Father. He says, I, verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. I want you just to understand what he's doing right here, okay? So we've just seen, uh, hey, grace and peace to you, and hey, I want you to know that I thank God for you. Here's, here, here's uh, the way this letter is working from the jump, um, is he's setting the tone for it. He's setting the tone for everything he's going to say. Now, this is important, um, because can we acknowledge that as people who, we, you know, we text, we email uh, every third breath, um, sometimes, sometimes when you text, the tone gets lost, Right? General rule, I try not to do anything serious uh, through text or email because I know my heart for the person is not going to come across. And, and this is just true. I like you text somebody and be like, hey, you know, hope you're having a great day. And they'll be like, what do you mean by that? You saying you didn't think I would? 
I mean, like, like there's just something lost when it's just text. And so what Paul is doing, and, and it, they were aware of this too. And so from the jump, what he's doing is he's setting up the tone for the entire letter. Hey, guys, my heart for you is that you would experience the grace and peace of God, our Father, that you would walk in that. On top of that, I want you to know that I'm so thankful to God for you. I want you to know that as I'm looking at the story of your lives, here's some great things that I see happening in you. He's just setting up the tone for all of it because here's the thing. um, It's going to get really difficult later on. And so what he's doing is, hey, before we, before we get to any of that, I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know that, man, you are spiritual children to me, that I care so much about you. This is important because it'd be easy for us to read this letter as Paul just going off on people. But he's not. It's not him yelling at them. There's kindness in all of it and legitimate concern. So he says, continuing, verse 5, for in him, talking about God, you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech, with all knowledge. Verse six, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. And right there, we just learned two things about spiritual gifts. You ready for them? Here's the first thing. Let's go back to verse six. It says, God's thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Now, here's why this is important, okay? And we can clear that off, Meg. So what God is doing through the gifts among them is confirming Christ, right? Like God is confirming our, t- like what's their testimony? Is that Jesus has died for their sin and rose from the dead. And he goes, listen, like what God is doing through the spiritual gifts that are manifesting among you is he's pointing to what he has done through Christ. Now, let me tell you why that's a big deal to know, okay? Like, like before we, like as we go into the conversation of spiritual gifts, as we go into like, like you know, like, the Lord moving supernaturally and what have you, the reason it's important to understand the function of spiritual gifts is because of the history of how people have rejected them. Like, like what Paul is getting at here is like what spiritual gifts do is they point people to Jesus. But sometimes what people think is that spiritual gifts point people to movements, I'll give you an example, right? So uh, we are, in this room, Protestants, right? Like, we're not Catholic, we're not Orthodox. We, we come from the Protestant Reformation. Hallelujah for Martin Luther and John Calvin. Praise God, okay? Um, something that happened in the, in the Protestant Reformation that, that wasn't a good thing was this. So you have the Reformers, and they step up. This was fine. They step up, and they go, like, here's these abuses of power in the Catholic Church. Like, you guys are selling indulgences. You're selling pieces of paper that you're telling people if they buy these, they can get their dead relatives out of hell free. Like, it's messed up, okay? And, and, and so you have the people who are calling the, 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 at that time, corrupt Catholic Church into account. But the Catholic Church, they didn't take that line down. So they went, well, you guys are sitting here, and you're critiquing us, but how dare you? Because we have 1,600 years of miracles and supernatural stuff on our side. So, like, that shows that God's with us. It shows, that, like, listen, okay, like, you're saying that, like, we're, like, that we're doing things wrong, but we can testify to healings, and we can testify to God speaking. Like, what do you have on your end? And so the reformers went, huh. And particularly, John Calvin, who was a great man of God, in this regard, acted impulsively. He's not, he's not infallible. This is what he did wrong. Calvin uncharacteristically looked at this, and he went, well, shoot, if they're saying that they have miracles to testify to their theology, well, then that, that means their miracles are counterfeit. So, supernatural stuff must have ceased. 
And out of this developed this theology called cessationism. It was the idea that this, like the gifts, particularly when it comes to healing, miracles, prophecy, tongues, these things have stopped. Because you had, you had the Catholic Church was saying, like, we have these things, and so therefore if they have these things and they're wrong, we know that they're wrong, that means God's not doing it anymore. And here's the mistake that he made. He misunderstood what gifts do. He thought that gifts confirm theologies, but they don't. Gifts confirm Christ. We, we just saw it here in verse 6. Like, God is confirming our testimony through giving gifts. That is what, like, gifts confirm that Jesus, and this is the only thing that gifts confirm. In fact, if you're taking notes, write this down. The only thing that spiritual gifts confirm is that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's it. That's it. And by the way, this is the understanding of the New Testament authors. I'll give you an example. Here's what Jesus says about the supernatural stuff that he did. It says, the, um, John 10, verse 24 and 25, says the Jews who were gathered around him were saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. That's what gifts do. They point to Jesus being the Messiah. Again, we can see it in Acts 2.22. Here's what Peter announces in the first sermon ever. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. What, what did the gifts do? Did Peter just say they, they testified that Jesus is the Messiah? Now, this is why this is so big, and I just want us to catch this, okay? Because there are all kinds of churches in the world and many of them are very, very gifted. And some of them have very bad doctrine. And it would be easy to think, well, because I see this supernatural thing, therefore that means that everything that they believe and practice is right. No. No, that's not what gifts do. Gifts don't testify to every little theology. They testify to Jesus being the Lord. And that's it. I'll give you an example, okay? So two movements right now. Um, We'll, take, we'll use charismatic Pentecostals like Assemblies of God, Church of God, praise God for our brothers and sisters there, and the vineyard movement, okay? Here's what, they, like, here's what each one believes about the Holy Spirit, okay? So uh, charismatic Pentecostal theology traditionally would say this, like when it comes to receiving the Holy Spirit, they would say, okay, like when you, when you get saved, you receive a little bit of Holy Spirit to save you. Like, so you'll go to heaven when you die, and that's fine. But what you really need is what's called a second blessing. We talked about this not too long ago. You need a second blessing that, um, and we, we don't believe that, but they do. It's fine. Like you, like, you need this, like, what they would call it being filled with or the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Like, you'll receive the Holy Spirit then, like, a second time. That's when you'll be empowered for victorious living and, 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 and have, like, supernatural power. And, and they would say, and the way that you'll know if you have the Holy Spirit is you will speak in tongues. So consequently, in, in uh, AG theology, uh, if you don't have, the, or if you, if you have the Holy Spirit, you'll speak in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Now, on the other end, you have the vineyard movement. And the vineyard movement says, okay, no, it's just you receive the Holy Spirit when, when you're saved and he empowers you as, as he wills. Done. Now, here's the crazy part. Both of those movements pray for the sick and see God heal people. And both of those movements speak in tongues. And, and, and seem to be legitimate. Both of those movements listen for the voice of the Lord and prophesy. But check this. Both those movements can't be right. They can't. Like you have a fundamental disagreement about like how someone receives the Holy Spirit. 
And what I'm telling you is that's not how gifts work. Gifts do not testify to individual smaller theologies. They testify to Jesus being the Lord, that he died for your sin, he rose from the dead, that he is God's anointed Messiah. So that's verse six of of 1 Corinthians 1. But here's the second thing that we learn. What we learn is this. Gifts do not equal character. Let me say that again. Gifts do not equal character. Here's what he says in verse seven. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Now, hey guys, you are a church that is gifted with every gift we can think of. It's amazing. You're not lacking anything. Let me tell you about the church that he wrote that to. Because they are as jacked up as a church can possibly be. Like within the ranks of the Corinthians, you have things like, <laughs> and spoilers, you've got a guy who's sleeping with his stepmom at best. All right? She's just called his father's wife. And the church looks at that, and rather than rebuke it, they go, praise God for his grace, brother. You just go right ahead. You have a group of people who are getting drunk on communion wine together at church. You have a group of people who are so petty, they're actually suing each other over small things. I mean, like, you have, like, just as bad as a church can possibly be is the Corinthian church. And yet, they're not lacking anything. Like, you want to understand, like, I mean, Paul's very real about who the Corinthians were. He says it like this in 1 Corinthians 3.1. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who still are worldly, merely infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not, re- you're not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. And yet, and yet, listen to this profoundly gifted, profoundly gifted. Because here's the thing to understand. Gifts don't mean character. You may have all the gifts in the world, but you are not above correction. You are not above needing to grow in Christ and grow more like Christ. I learned this the hard way. So um, when when I was in college, I got to know a guy who was one of the most gifted uh in terms of the gift of prophecy, I'm going to just use prophecy as an example here, uh, in terms of the gift of prophecy that I'd ever known. I mean, just could look at somebody, tell them all kinds, I, mean, I call it reading their mail. You know what I'm saying? Like, he would just look at them, read their mail, like, oh, this, you know, God's doing this, and here's what I see with you, and da 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 Yeah, and it was really incredible to watch. And yet, behind the scenes, he lacked all kinds of character, had zero patience for anyone, lacked in love like crazy. There's not a gentle bone in his body like, if you knew him off stage, you would not want to be around him because he was toxic and yet gifted. And, and I'm bringing this up because something to understand is that just, be, just because somebody has a gift doesn't mean that they're completely like Christ. Like, I made the mistake around. I would just take, like, the, the abuse that he was throwing my way. And I would do it because I would, I, I would justify it like this in my mind. I would go, well, listen, he's hearing God clearly, all right? And if he's hearing God clearly, like, God will tell him if he's wrong. Well, hopefully, but who's to say he's listening? No, gifts do not mean character. You know, how can that work? Well, it can work because of this. The, the, the word that we translate as, as gift is charismata. Same root as the word that we translate for grace, charis. Like, they don't come from you earning anything. They come out of God's kindness. Let me bring it home a little bit more. 
Um, this past year, one of the most popular podcasts in, in uh, Apple, Google, what have you, was a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Have you heard that podcast? It's fantastic. It, it chronicles uh, the, the rise of the Seattle megachurch, uh, Mars Hill Church, uh, their, their leader, Mark Driscoll, and, and how the things sort of imploded and no longer exists. Um, and in episode one, the, the host, Mike, Mike Cosper, he asked a question. He, like, he's talking about like, everything that happened with Driscoll. And, and then he says, like, but it's not just him. Like, we, we could cite uh, Robbie Zacharias or, or uh, Perry Noble or Bill Hybels with, with, with Willow Creek. And he just asked this question. He goes, why do we keep doing this to ourselves? Like, why is it we keep creating platforms that are, that are, like, we just elevate a person and elevate a person and elevate a person, and then when the spotlight gets too much, they, or, or we just didn't see there was something wrong, but what, whatever happens, they implode or they explode, and they do all kinds of damage in their wake. Like, why do we keep putting ourselves through that? And it's a really good question. And I've thought about it. I think I know. Maybe. You know what I think it is? I think it's that the only mode of church we've ever known is one that only elevates individuals on stages. I'm not on one right now. I'm not against preaching, but like we, we, we don't understand church as a team sport. We think of it in terms of like in terms of us all having gifts and us all being in this together. Instead, we think of it as a few select, it's like something that a few select staff members do, right? And so how many people, they think, like, listen, like if the church is going to grow, that's the pastor's job, right? Like, the pastor, he needs to, he needs to create the right programs, and he needs, to, uh, he needs to preach really, really well, and we never go, like, hey, who am I sharing my faith with? Like, we, I mean, and, and to be fair, TV hasn't existed forever. Church used to be the event that you would go to. Like, I'm thinking about, like, Spurgeon or, or like, the, like, the Prince of Preachers. I'm thinking about, you know, all kinds of, like, these great uh, men and, 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 and women throughout the years who basically, like, they would get on stage, and, and you just couldn't help but be attracted to what they were saying. You'd be like, oh, wow, right? And it was this sort of one-stop shop. It was your entertainment. But, the, see, that's behind all that we've known. And so what we do is we create platforms because it's easier. It's easier, like, if something grows, let me go be part of that so that, like, you know, I, I can be part of a movement and feel good, but I don't actually have to be sacrificial for the movement. Like, this is awesome. Because at the end of the day, I think what we do is we suffer from something. And it's a term of, I, I, I think I've coined. You know what we suffer from? We suffer what I call, or we suffer from what I call holy man syndrome. Holy man syndrome. Basically what we do is, is we believe that there are certain elevated, gifted individuals that are up here and there's us down here. It's almost like, it's, it's this Old Testament mentality of like, you know, we, we, we read the Old Testament and we see like prophets just kind of emerging from the wilderness. They're just kind of singular and on their own. Now, that's not the greatest reading of the Old Testament, but I can see why somebody would see it. You know, you think of like Elijah who just comes running up, right? And, and so we think of like, there's sort of like with the idea of a man or woman of God, we believe it's this like one person who's this lone voice crying in the wilderness. And that's fine for the Old Testament because prophets mostly functioned as God's lawyers back then. But when you shift to the New Testament, the entire function of the prophetic changes. And it becomes not about writing cases for God, but about building up the body of Christ. Consequently, what changes is the number of prophets. Like, while they might be rare in the Old Testament, you're tripping over them in the New Testament. I'll give you an example. Like, here's what Paul writes, the Corinthian church. He says this, 1 Corinthians 41, for you can all prophesy. Guys, you can all do it. It's fine. In turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. 
Let me just say the whole church. Yeah, you guys just go for it. What? Again, I'll give you another example. Here's here's what it says uh, in the book of Acts about the family of Philip, the evangelist. It says, Acts uh, 21, verses 8 and 9. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So when it comes to this idea of like like a, a prophetic gifting, and again, that's not the only gift. But it's just an easy example. This is way more widespread than we think. It doesn't allow us room for the holy man syndrome. And so what happens is like in our culture, what we do is we see people and we, if, we, if they make us laugh or, we, or they make us think or, or, or we like what they're saying or, you know, if the lights are bright enough and the music is polished enough, then we'll just, we'll just skirt all the other stuff and we'll use it with the line of, we'll look at the fruit. Well, people are getting saved, so it's fine. Like, why, why would I scrutinize this? Like, it, it's fine. And, and what I'm telling you is that nobody is above scrutiny. Nobody is above, and I mean, not to be rude about it. Like, I don't want 100 emails this week, but like, but like, nobody is above being questioned. And nobody's above going like, hold on, let me just make sure that's from God. Let me dig into the scriptures for myself. And You know, you said this or you did like this. And I, I got to be honest with you. I, you know, like, you really mean that person? And I question, you know, I think maybe you need to go talk to them and apologize. Like, there's nothing, there's not a one of us who's above rebuke. It's this idea of like holy man syndrome. Well, no, no, no. It's not so-and-so can talk real good, and so therefore they have, they have arrived and are completely like Christ. Like, anybody who works with me will tell you, I can be annoying sometimes. Don't nod your head, Josh. Um, like, and that I don't have it all together, even though I can dig into the Bible, because like teaching might be my gift, but it doesn't mean that my gift is above anybody else's. And this is the thing I, I, I want to hammer into us as, as we go forward is to understand that spiritual gifts do not mean character. Never just assume because somebody is really, really gifted, that means they are completely like Christ or that you should just let them do whatever they want unchecked. That's a mistake. It's absolutely a mistake. Because here's the, here's the thing just to recognize. If you're taking notes, write this down. Spiritual gifts don't come from maturity or personal holiness. They come from the kindness of God. Just soak for the, a moment. Spiritual gifts don't come from maturity or personal holiness. They come from the kindness, the undeserved kindness of God. Gifts are measures of grace. They are God going, hey, I'm going to use you to bless some people. Well, I'm a broken vessel. Yes, you are, but I'm going to use you. I mean, my gosh, if we're going to make this a thing of like, you need to get X, Y, and Z together, and you got to make sure you believe everything right about everything, nobody's going to be used at all because we're constantly growing. And the good news is our, our loving Heavenly Father, he wants to take us alongside of him and use us in this redemption of creation. So, I mean, this is also, if I could say it like this, this is also the understanding of the early church. Like, there's this great story in Acts 3 where Peter and John, they're, they're walking up to the temple and they pray for a guy to be healed. I mean, this guy, he's, he's lame, he can't walk, and God restores his legs right there. It's awesome. People come running up, and they're like, what? And you know what Peter and John say to the people who are, who are just amazed at this? Here's what they say, Acts 3, verses 12 and 13. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? 
Why do you stare at us, and look at this, as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? In other words, why are you looking at us like we had anything to do with it? We're just human beings. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has, and there's the heart of it again, glorified his servant Jesus. What do gifts and manifestations of the Spirit do? They glorify Christ. There's a place that believes that Jesus has died for your sin and rose from the dead. Salvation can be only found through him. And, and, and they pray and they see God do something. Am I surprised? No. What if I don't agree with them about everything? I don't agree with, that, with me about everything. No, I'm not surprised. The net's a lot bigger than that. And here, Peter and John go, this, this, this is why this happened. And just to, so we're, we're clear, it wasn't because we're holy men. And it wasn't because we're somehow, like, we're little gods on the earth or anything like that. No, like, he's glorifying Jesus. Done. And so 1 Corinthians teaches us, by the way, as we go into this story of this broken church. And I would just say that, in spite of all that brokenness, and there is so much, like, we're going to have kids' warnings on some future talks. Like, it's messed up. In spite of all that brokenness, here's the really good part. Paul doesn't lose hope they're going to become like Christ. So look, go forward, verse 8. So in, in the face of all of that, he says, he, talking about God, will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, yeah, but Paul, don't you know what they're up to? Oh, he knows. He's writing a letter about it. But he doesn't lose confidence that God's going to finish the work that he started in them. God, who is faithful, verse 9, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hey, guys, I'm going to address some things, but I want you to know, I know God's going to see it through. I know he's going to mold you perfectly to be like Christ, that your sanctification, the, po- the process through which God is making you like him, and it's the spirit doing it, not your sort of sin management or personal efforts, God's going to take care of it. If I could say it like this, just to understand, the tone of this book is not Paul going, I'm worried about your salvation. He's not. I mean, he's just not, hey, like God's going to finish it. And it's not, hey, guys, I'm angry at you. Or, hey, guys, God's really mad at you. It's, no, no, I trust God, and I trust him with you. But that said, there are some things I need to talk with you about. Because I love you enough to be honest with you. So what do we do with that? Well, we start this whole process by resting. Resting. Because... Many of us, we think that, that the power and movement of the Lord is something that we've got to drum up. We think that this is going to be a thing where, okay, you know, if I just pray X amount of time during the week, then, of course, God's going to hear and move as though I could earn something from him. Should you spend X amount of time? Pray? Yeah, go for it. Like, be around. Jesus is great. Minister to your soul. But don't think that you can somehow leverage God by the, your sort of personal piety. You can't. So we start this by resting in the grace and mercy of Christ. And we also start with this following understanding. You ready for this? This is just so good about the Lord. Write this down. God loves to pour his spirit into broken vessels. He does. Oh, he loves it. He loves to pour his spirit into broken vessels. I mean, that is the Corinthians. They are so broken. Like, there are, few, there are very few. It takes a lot to make me go like, <laughs> but but the Corinthian church, man. And yet, I need Christ as much as they do. And so do you. 
And here's the really cool part. God wants to give his spirit without finding fault. He wants to raise up these gifts, this charismatic. But it all comes not from your personal piety or from you realizing something that you hadn't realized before or you praying enough or you fasting enough. And those things are fine. Praise God for praying and fasting. But it comes from the kindness of God because gifts are precisely that. They're gifts. So all of that said, how about we seek the giver? This morning. Let's invite him to do what he wants to do. So as a church, let's just pray together. Father, we thank you because you're so daggone good to us. You are so kind. Lord, I, I, I just want to thank you because um, you've been bringing us this moment. I didn't even realize it when, when you started this 12 years ago, but, but, but you knew what you were doing. I thank you because, like, you've called us to this moment. And, Lord, I want to ask you, um, would you draw our hearts to yours? Would you let us know uh, what your heart beats for. We don't want to seek gifts in spite of knowing you, and we don't want to use you for gifts. We want to use gifts to serve and love those that you bring across our path. So I pray out of, out of personal relationship and enjoyment, that's the phrase, out of enjoyment of you, we get to experience gifts. I pray for an extra measure of an awareness of your, of your spirit and your presence in our lives, um, because Lord, it's so great to be around. Pray for these, your, your children who, who you've got all kinds of plans for. Would you let them know your kindness? And within that vein, would you let them know your gifts? I pray you pour out gifts of prophecy and tongues and healing and, and faith and, and administration and teaching and generosity and service. Lord, I pray you just, and, and all the other ones that I'm not naming right now, but Lord, you, you just drum up those gifts in your children so that the name of Jesus may be glorified through us in this community so that we can draw people who don't know you to you and so that we can serve each other well, selflessly. We love you and we thank you for what you're gonna do. Because it's all on you, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.